Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, this is Phil Stevens, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild. Do lots of cool stuff. Got a new Special Olympics kid started this week. So, nice. he, got, he got elected to go to the... The actual Special Olympics, so next year, the Worlds. So big time. He'll be representing, he'll be representing team representing Team USA in powerlifting. So we got a year to get him ready. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, creator of the Flux Diet Certification that opens again this week for a week, and be teaching for Rocky Mountain University again this fall. Cool. All righty. Uh, everyone, it, the three of us are just going to do a sort of a pre-game show, the first half, if you will. Uh, after the break, Dr. Nelson is going to interview Guillermo Escalante. He's a bodybuilder, very near pro-level bodybuilder, and uh, he's going to kind of pick his brain about final week preparation or what it takes to become a bodybuilder or all the kinds of things that... Um, Guillermo is about. Uh, Mike and I were talking with him just a few weeks ago at the ISSN meeting over a, a dinner. Um, fascinating guy, totally destroys the you know, idea that you have to be either an egghead or a meathead. He's really both, and I know a lot of our listeners are both. Um, I have one little uh, listener mail and two studies that we're going to talk about here in the first half. Um, just the first one is actually a rating from iTunes, and I thought this was just fun. The The person says here, um, best out there, hands down. It's like NPR for meatheads, uh, but, <laughs> but with an interesting injection of actual science, a rarity in today's age. These guys are a pleasure to listen to, and I'm thankful that they continue to bring the heat. So I appreciated that one. Uh, just from our iTunes review page, because essentially that's what our news portion is, right? It's what's happening, and then what's the analysis that we bring to it, I guess. Um, okay, I have two brief studies here to get your guys' input on this first one my wife sent me. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, this is something that I've been looking forward to two for a long time i don't think it's going to pan out into an eye watch um per se unless you can spit on your eye watch but um 
It says Australian scientists develop pain-free blood sugar test for diabetics. So uh, Mike and I have talked about this over the years uh, for a long time. Like continuous blood glucose monitoring is a thing. It gives you better data than just finger pricks. But I know a lot of people like to play with that. Phil, you've even kind of played with some of that stuff, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind of blood sugar response do you have to different carbs? Um, it says... Australian scientists say that they have developed a holy grail for blood sugar testing for diabetics, a non-invasive strip that checks blood glucose levels via your saliva. So this latest test works by embedding an enzyme that detects glucose into a transistor. Uh, That can then transmit the presence of glucose. uh, And this was described according to Paul Dastor, D-A-S-T-O-O-R, Dastor, professor of physics at the University of Newcastle in Australia, who led the team that created it. Uh, Since the electronic materials in the transistor are ink, the test can be made through printing at a low cost, Dastur said. So Mm. it sounds like the electronic materials are literally printed inks, and that's going to equal some widespread manufacturing distribution, apparently. It says a non-invasive printable saliva test strip for diabetics is seen at the University of Newcastle uh, in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia um, in this picture. They're showing you a picture of it here that obviously we can't do on audio. It says the new test, Dastur said, was created by chance as the scientists were working on solar cells. The project secured $6.3 million uh, in funding from the Australian government to establish a facility to produce the test kits uh, should clinical trials be passed. Dastor says the technology could be transferred to other kinds of tests, including COVID-19 and allergens and even hormones. So this is very interesting, of course, because right now we have to test hormones through, even if it's in your saliva, you know, it's a 39-step enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay where every pipette step is a you know, risk that you're going to screw it up and that sort of thing. But uh, he says, I think it's going to radically change the way we think about medical devices and in particular sensors, because we can print these at remarkably low cost. Uh, Mike, I thought about you being uh, an engineer. Uh, Any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's pretty interesting like that. There's been all sorts of different ways um, when I was a little bit more up to date on that with the biomedical stuff like the the MEMS technology and just rethinking how to do sensors is not so much kind of the old school way. And the fact that they may be able to attach to other molecules in your physiology is super interesting. And I love the idea of printing stuff like there's been stuff now for a while about 3d printing of organs using you know different cell lines and you know how that might work so it's yeah sounds super fascinating i i kind of hope it pans out but we'll see yeah yeah it's amazing to me that they can just print almost anything these days um and what yeah. that, what that means for how quickly they can make it and how broadly they can distribute it um from phil i was curious in your gym if you could do this is simply as a you know spit on in your hand and dip the little sensor in it or however this is going to be done and you could get not just blood sugar but hormones or other things do you think that's going to come into play would you ever use that in your gym testing hormones or blood sugar i mean yeah it might just be for fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) um 
just to see what kind of reaction you get. I mean, it'd be neat to be able to finally have something easy and accessible to see, like, what happens to your blood sugar after a hard squat session mm-hmm. or things like that. And then what happens to it when you refeed or something, you know, slam yeah. a freaking Gatorade 20 minutes later and things like after that. Three you know, donuts. Yeah, you know, things like that or you know, seeing if there is some kind of response to training or meals or something like that as, as far as, you know, snapshot testosterone levels or something, which right. we all know that can be slightly meaningless. You know, if my testosterone goes up really high for 15 minutes, really, what does it do? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, things like that. But yeah, it would definitely be neat. I mean, at least check out. I think it'd be cool uh, to be able to look at things like, you know, maybe you're... Um, when you're if you're sore all the time and your aerobic conditioning sucks, maybe your yeah. blood sugars are running higher, or you know, like maybe your cortisol to testosterone ratio is high because you're overtraining in some yeah. way. Uh, this does look or like it's take a, a lot of testing. Like you know, if somebody's you know this group of people is progressing, you know, greatly. This these few people aren't. Let's see if there's some kind of statistical difference there. You know, like, yeah, oh, you guys' yeah. blood sugar's way up, and these guys aren't. You know, whatever. I mean, it would take a lot of sample tests to reach any kind of inkling of an answer. Right. But it'd be fun. Well, so. even guys, I mean, if somebody was using any number of, you know, performance-enhancing drugs, I mean, you could be like, well, your testosterone levels are this high. You know, you're off yeah. the scale, or you're, yeah. you know, who knows? Insulin, uh, IGF-1, who knows? Um, yeah, I thought it was cool because it was non-invasive. It depends on how quick, quick and reliable it is. And again, we're doing this as a news bit, right? This is just coming from writers uh, as something that might be a couple years down the road. But it seems very possible to me. And Mike, I'm sure you can back that up. I mean, all you have to do is listen to NPR, um, like Science Friday. They're always talking about stuff like this coming down the pike. So um, I think it will happen. It's just a matter of of time. Oh, I, I'm remiss. The author last name is Bikes, B-I-K-E-S that's doing that reporting. Um, yeah, anyway. I think it'd be super cool to have something like that as sort of a CGM of you know hormone data and whatever else you could grab, right? So continuous glucose monitoring, which uh, I've done a few times. I've got clients that do it once in a while. It's nice because you get relatively accurate numbers. I mean, there's a few caveats you kind of have to watch out for, but you get it with also a very high frequency. <clears throat> so you can see, like we talked about, responses to you know training and sleep and everything else. So it'd be super interesting then from a data collection standpoint mm-hmm. of training programs or you know looking at people's recovery or whatever metrics and. I think we'll find like with, you know, testosterone, even cortisol and other hormones that there's a lot more variability there than what we realize. We just, you know, like you said, Monty, trying to do it now. I mean, even I think the I've been trying to find a study for years that just looked at people sitting at rest, not doing anything and just ran like testosterone numbers like one after the other after the other. Right, just to see how variable that is just at rest without any other sort of stimulation. Mm-hmm. My gut feeling is that it's probably more variable than what we think. And to have that kind of maybe non-invasively that you can just pull onto your phone would be super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, Phil makes a good point about the pulsatility of all, natural hormone production is going to go up and down yeah. a lot. But yeah, I mean, if if you are if you're a morning lark instead of a night owl, um, how does that affect like your peak blood glucose in the morning versus evening? You know, I mean, classically, I've read that evening carbohydrate tolerance and insulin sensitivity might be poorer. And so you could kind of see, you know, are my blood sugars running higher in the evening versus in the morning? Kind of see, you know, this individual thing. It's, you know, more data, as you already do, Mike. More data means more information so long as you can kind of hone in on which data points are valuable, I suppose. Um, Yeah, as long as it's accurate. And, you know, the nice part is we can get that data from a CGM right now, but... The big unknown, especially as you get into closer people who are not as metabolically healthy, is what is your insulin levels? You know, like I said, I did a study years ago. Unfortunately, it never got published, so you're in a half of my life that never saw the light of day. But we did the glucose numbers first because they're easy to do. Mm-hmm. And then they had to send out the insulin numbers to be done. They came back. And some people who were, you know, a little bit high on glucose in the 120 range, uh, these are borderline type 2 diabetics. They were okay on insulin, not great. And then some other people who are right around the same number for blood glucose, their insulin was freaking sky high, right? So I think as you get into more of a disease population, the other hormones and what's going on become even more important then. Yipper. Okay, let's see. We have one more just to get your guys' feedback, and then we're just going to end this morning, everybody, because of the pre-recorded interview um, this is just going to bring up a discussion, I think, but uh, I'm looking at a paper in my hand from Greto, G-R-E-T-O, or Greto, and colleagues, many colleagues on this paper from the International Journal of Obesity. Extensive weight loss reduces glycan age by altering IgG and glycosylation. What a mouthful. But essentially what they're suggesting here is that weight loss and other weight loss techniques reduce how gummed up your proteins are and therefore make you look younger, right? So um, just as a heads up, I was looking this morning. I started looking at a lot of papers about how carbohydrates and running glycolysis hard and fast all the time, right, from your carb intake and higher insulin concentrations, um, is directly related to aging. In fact, some of those older papers from Yang, I just looked, uh, Chow Dong is one, C-H-A-O-D-O-N-G. They are constantly pointing the finger at carbohydrate intake speeding up aging. Uh, and I find this interesting because for years, um, Phil, you've done this quite separately from me and in parallel before we even talked about it. But what goes up over the course of a year in an athlete, if your protein and fat are relatively constant, it's mm-hmm. the carbs. You want to gain weight, you plow the carbs, you know, eat lots. If you want to cut weight, watch any almost any bodybuilder. They'll cyclically or, or linearly reduce carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find a lot of that stuff. Some of the newer papers on carb intake and aging, voyeur. Lee Ingram. So if you go to the National Library of Medicine, you want to go dig around some of these uh, authors' names on PubMed, you're going to see that I'm not making this up. This has been happening for a long time. I wrote a paper, oh my goodness, probably 15 years ago for T Nation called High Stakes, uh, written S-T-E-A-K, like a pun, because eating a lot all the time is, you know, linked to rapid aging. So 
think about our population. What do we do? We go after the food, especially during weight gain phases. I mean, historically so, like with Phil's plates of brownies and they're looking at his poo because it's so dramatic and, and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we do what are called um, calorie restriction mimetics, like exercise, right? But not just, there's a time for calorie restriction, I think, in a lot of strength athletes' diets, but especially bodybuilders. But also the the idea of exercising, they'll call that a calorie restriction mimetic, right? Because it's, it's mimicking calorie restriction. So we're in a much better metabolic state than someone who's simply starving. Um, so we eat a ton, but then sometimes we do cutting cycles or, you know, we always exercise. So how much does that counteract it? All that kind of stuff. Uh, listeners, you may have heard lately there's a Dr. David Sinclair. I think he's the chair of the biochemistry department at Harvard, and he's talking yeah. a lot about NAD boosters, um, metformin, right? Um, the carbohydrate metabolism improving drug, if you will. It works by a couple of different mechanisms. I don't want to get into liver output versus muscle sensitivity right now. But um, he is advocating these NAD boosters, and we may have to do a whole episode on them. They're the first supplement that's come down the pike that makes me fascinated frankly, um, in a long time. But he also sort of advocates intermittent fasting and amino acid avoidance, protein avoidance, and that's not going to work for us, I don't think. I mean, you almost <laughs> have, you have to look at one of, which one of these things are we going to be, are people like our listeners, are we going to be down with, and which one we're like, no, bro. I, I don't want to live to be 120 if I'm, you know, feeble um, kind of thing. So... Anyway, so this paper, I'm just going to cut to the chase so I can get some uh, feedback from uh, Phil and Mike here. But it says, obesity, a major global health problem, is associated with increased cardiometabolic morbidity and mortality. Protein glycosylation, so gumming up those bodily proteins, is a frequent post-translational modification, highly responsive to inflammation and aging. So we investigated whether weight loss interventions affect inflammation and aging-associated uh, gumming up, and they were looking at a specific, specific um, uh, protein here, uh, an immune protein. But anyway, it says um, they looked at these gummed up uh, molecules uh, chromatographically. Uh, they profiled them in 37 obese patients, and then they subjected them to either a low-carb diet followed by bariatric surgery, uh, and they looked across multiple time points. But in, in a nutshell, it says low-cal diet induced a marked decrease in the level of these gummed-up proteins. Bariatric surgery resulted in extensive alterations in the total profile of this. Um, it's the IgGn glycome, for those of you who care, and most of you probably don't. But essentially, it, it says altogether these findings highlight that weight loss substantially affects the IgG glycosylation, or gumming up. Uh, resulting in reduced glycan and reduced biological age. So it's just kind of crazy to think. I think a lot of our listeners, of course, know that metabolic syndrome is it's related to aging. It's related to inflammation. In fact, there's even a term that floats around in the literature, including this paper, inflammaging. Uh, it's almost like diabetes where they're you know compounding these words, but inflammaging. It makes me glad that as I get older, my wife and I were always doing stuff to reduce inflammation, you know, the usual fish oils or curcumin or, or whatever it might be. So 
carbohydrates kind of getting blamed in a way. You know, there's even papers you can find on PubMed right now about glycotoxicity and that sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, there's some names for everybody. So the stuff that's in the news a lot with that Harvard professor, David Sinclair. What do you think, Mike? Have you heard much about this? Of course, I'm fascinated by glycation because coffee might reduce it. In fact, that was one of the, the studies that I've had my eye on recently is can coffee or other things that help with blood sugar control, can they reduce how gummed up you are? Because I was blown away that you can actually put your arm against uh, certain devices. There's these AGE readers and see how sort of reflective or, or fluorescent your skin is. It's non-invasive, right? So watch that become a, some, a part of a watch, you know, how gummed up you are and how you can, if you wait, lose weight or avoid high-carbohydrate diets, some people say if you go keto, it reduces how gummed up you are. So that's almost by definition one of the markers of aging, right? You can slow that whole process. But I've been rambling. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think it's super interesting um obviously from my bias i just think about it in terms of lens of metabolic flexibility i've seen some people where maybe even poked them for lactate a little bit and their baseline levels of lactate are really high and that indicates that you're just cranking through glycolysis pretty hard um and i think that's going to be like you mentioned a marker for aging Right. If I have my little jet out, I'm just I'm constantly redlining it in order to create energy. And in the handful of those people where we've seen that, uh, my buddy Luke Lehman has seen this too at Muscle Nerds. They're they have all sorts of issues, <laughs> uh, but they were you know in this case a couple people I'm thinking of were relatively young too, so it wasn't um, older people. Um, sometimes on metabolic heart testing, you'll see people at rest or even during an RMR you'll see their RER, right, their respiratory exchange ratio, which is telling you how much fat versus carbohydrates you're using at rest. Yeah. You'll see that that tends to be more towards the carbohydrate end of the spectrum. Uh, that gets into all sorts of stuff about, you know, overfeeding and what was their diet beforehand and was it just a, a change because they are using more carbohydrates. So we know that in a healthy person, if you feed them more carbohydrates, if they're metabolically flexible, they will then try to oxidize more of those carbohydrates as a fuel. Um, so my PhD research, we looked at a potentially non-invasive way of measuring metabolic flexibility. So we put people on exercise, just a very low intensity exercise at steady state. And then we did some variability analysis of their RER. Uh, we showed that that measurement is repeatable, but unfortunately, so far, no one's actually shown if it really is a marker for metabolic flexibility or not. So my caveat with all of that is that I think if you are not so metabolically healthy, I think going to a lower carbohydrate approach, I think, is a very valid uh, method. And that can be useful, especially if you're stuck on the carbohydrate end of the spectrum. My fear is that people who are relatively healthy without looking at any under the hood measurements are then going to use that as a justification to only do a low carb method and their performance and everything else may suffer because I've seen also people on <clears throat> very high intakes of carbohydrates. Granted, they were healthy, they were younger, they did a pretty high volume of exercise and <clears throat> at rest, and just kind of hanging out, they were able to downregulate and to use fat. 
despite having this very high carbohydrate background. So that's that's kind of my caveat because, like I said, I it's easy to read into this and then we forget the difference between you know people who are maybe not as metabolically healthy and don't do a lot of exercise and that it's very easy and probably not correct to transfer that to people doing you know five six seven hours of exercise uh, a week eating the higher carbohydrate approach and then assuming they get stuck on the carbohydrate end of the spectrum where I've seen some of those people can still downregulate and still be able to use fat during lower intensity exercises. So they're staying more metabolically flexible. And in theory, they would kind of be better and kind of out of the woods related to this. Right. Yeah. Fitness level is one of those control issues. My nutrition right. colleagues, uh, they don't always look at that adequately. Just like on ec- the exercise physiology side, they don't always look at people's chronic diets adequately, in my opinion. Right. But, yeah, if you're very fit, you're not going to be the same kind of person, um, the same kind of response. I gave a continuing medical education talk to some physicians at a local hospital, and it was basically about that, like high fructose corn syrup, the constant intake that we have these days. It's much more damaging to underfit fat people right, than it is to fit people. And there was some really cool, like, biochemical stuff and, you know, organ stuff that we were talking about, but... I'm curious, Phil, if if muscle athletes want high levels of IGF-1 and insulin, right? I mean, that's growth. I mean, mm-hmm. but they increase aging and disease, if at least in excess. Um, how do you look at that personally? Are you willing to age more quickly or do you figure, no hell with that, I'm so fit, this doesn't apply to me, you know? Uh, I go back to the elite athletics has nothing to do with health. And mm-hmm. every elite athlete I know has accepted that, mm-hmm. you know, and that's then it's just like a like a statement that's like who cares, you know, like it's like that study they did with the the Olympians, like they if there was a pill that guaranteed you won the Olympics but you die in five years, would you take it? And like almost resoundingly, they all said yes. You know, they don't give a shit. Their goal is that, you know, and that's that's how it is with most elite athletes. They'll do whatever it takes to set to win this goal. You know, and then later in life, of course, like I've changed, you know, my outlook on everything is totally different at 44 than it was at 30 and things like that. You start getting older, it's like, oh, I got to change things or I am going to die. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on the age of the athlete and everything else. But in general, I mean, when you go to top echelon things, it's like just do what it takes to win, you know? Yeah. And then they don't care. Like, okay, so I look five years older. I don't care. <laughs> you know, whatever. I don't know. You're seeing some. You usually don't see the health stuff until the athletes are a bit older and they're getting out of their prime and things like that. And it's yeah. like, okay, now it's time to pay attention to health. But still, at the same time, most ex-athletes, even at the strength end, if you compare them to somebody their same age, they just look younger. They're just built more oh, fit. They they're, you know, it's yep. I mean, fitness goes a long ways. You got to add that in and in, in the health of life, and so I think it, it. Yeah, it's not just that they have structure. They literally, even facially, like and functionally, in many ways, they're, oh, yeah. they're just younger. They're, those biomarkers yep. are. Was was it Volek that did that paper about how you can reduce muscle loss of aging, the sarcopenia of aging, by like a factor of fourfold just by resistance training as you age? Even this. Skinny little David Sinclair from Harvard has talked about some exercise and resistance 
exercise and you know preserve your muscle mass. One paper I read this morning even suggested it sounded to me almost like the opposite of what lifters do, but they say try to suppress IGF one and and a lot of these growth factors when you're young, and then boost them slightly when you're older. And I'm like, well, you know, lifters are going to be kind of trying to jack this you know, all the time. It's almost like your point, Mike, with redlining glycolysis all the time. It's it's hard on you. In this case, I'm not talking about just glycolysis, although that too, um, but even the hormone levels, because they asked him, uh, this Harvard uh, prof, what about testosterone or what about other things that can help maintain muscle mass? And he said, no, I wouldn't use that. It comes back to bite you in the butt in the end. I'm thinking, well, you know, we have to pick and choose probably in our population, which of these things we might do. And Keto diets or cyclical uh, diets, intermittent fasting, whatever, those might be on the table. But I don't think avoiding testosterone and amino acids are really on the table for us. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think of how else we do this. And exercise might be the great corrector, I guess. Yeah. And also when media people tend to ask those questions, it's just, is testosterone good or bad? You know, and if that's not necessarily your research area. A follow-up question would be, well, at what levels? Right? Are we talking about a, a low to moderate, you know, HRT-type dose, or are we talking, like, supraphysiologic levels? And I think people subconsciously, they go to, you know, performance-enhancing drugs and being in this supraphysiologic range for a long period of time, uh, which I think probably does come with the cost. But like everything, it's kind of nuanced and... We don't have a ton of data. And if you look at the opposite end, being hypogonadal towards the last, you know, three decades of your life is probably not good either. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's right. Uh, I'm thinking about that, too. I uh, Stallone made the comments when he was trying to bring back some growth hormone from Australia. This was years ago. <laughs> I remember the mm-hmm. news. He's like, you don't understand. It's, it's the fountain of youth. So I think structurally, mm-hmm. visually, it is. I mean, he got in he, thicker. Well, you know, arguably better shape when he was like sick in his 60s than he even when he was um, very ripped, but much smaller when he was, you know, in the a lot of the action movies and stuff. But these more recent movies that he's been in, he has been ridiculously jacked and visually and structurally clearly superior, even at an advanced age. But I think, you know, you have to contrast that sort of like what Phil's saying with. But that might come as a price. And that's just something you accept. You know, mm-hmm. in some ways, having more muscle looks younger. That's a biomarker of aging. But, you know, yeah, if you take a look at his tissues and he's very glycated and gummed up or has advanced cardiovascular disease, that's not cool. Um, but again, yeah, we're coupling this with lots of exercise and, and diets that are not built around Coca-Cola and Big Macs, you know, so. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that's, especially starting to GH and stuff like that, I in my head, I always just wonder about what happens to, you know, glucose mechanisms. You know, if it's someone who doesn't exercise a lot, has a really crappy diet, you know, giving them GH is probably going to have even more side effects. But if you're looking at someone who's, you know, very healthy, their nutrition is on point, they're not in a massive caloric surplus, everything else is good, eh, maybe not as much of, you know, potential issues related to glucose metabolism and blood glucose, etc. all right well um we should cut it there we'll probably have an extra long episode how long did you talk with uh dr escalante mike well it was about an hour okay so large bonus bonus episode yeah bonus episode for everybody 
Yep, there you go. All right, cool stuff, fellas. Bye, guys. We'll see you. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, in about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it Hey, welcome to Iron Radio. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, Dr. Lonnie Lowry is out traveling across the country, and Coach Phil Stevens is busy doing a weigh-in with some of his lifters at a meet. And today we've got Dr. Guillermo Escalante. We're going to get into his story here in just a bit. And in the topic of the day, we're going to discuss all things that go into being a top rank uh, bodybuilder even if that maybe is not your aspiration i think it's interesting to see what goes into it from training time management lifestyle and even get into you know drugs and other things like that um, and also we'll do a second part uh, with dr escalante on my podcast which is uh, flex diet podcast and there we're going to talk all about just kind of a little bit of a continuation of the topic, and in that one, we're going to discuss a great paper that he published. We can link to it in this show also, uh, looking at different techniques to uh, prepare for a peak week, 
everything from sodium, water, carbohydrates, and possibly other ancillary drugs and things that are involved in that. So just search on your favorite podcast player for the Flex Diet podcast. So uh, welcome, doctor. Thank you for being on Iron Radio. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I, I'm honored to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, no problem. Um, so yeah, give us a little bit of the backstory because you're we got we got to hang out with you and your wonderful wife at the president's dinner at ISSN uh, recently. Uh, Lonnie was there too, and yeah, we just had a really fun conversation. It was a fun night, and I'm always fascinated by people who have gotten to a very high level in you know whatever profession in this case bodybuilding, and then also in in academics. So how did you kind of get started down that dual path? Uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting path. So my, my passion, I think like a lot of us, just stemmed from uh, just an interest in, in athletics and uh, wanting to, to perform better on the field. I, I uh, played football and ran track through, through high school and uh, even into college. Um, so uh, my, my passion began very early, you know, around the age of uh, uh, 10, 11. I bought my first nutrition book when I was 12 and, and I started implementing uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, you know, different training practices and uh, nutrition practices uh, through through high school and through even junior high school, and I, I really noticed a a big impact it, that and that 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 played in uh, my ability to perform better. I wasn't necessarily uh, gifted in in a lot of genetics uh, with with athletics, but I I was able to work really hard and really make up for a lot of that and uh, make myself actually a pretty pretty good athlete. Uh, through high school and college, and, uh, and and that came with just a lot of hard work and understanding uh, the importance of that. So I started applying a lot of these practices through then. And when I went to college, I um, I had a, a good understanding of uh, and, and passion for for the sciences and, and the human body. And uh, when I realized that actually actually I could actually study that, I thought that was really cool. So I integrated uh, my uh, my passion for sports and athletics and and science, and I ended up getting a a major in athletic training and a biology minor. And, uh, and that's kind of where everything started kind of coming together. So I uh, became a certified athletic trainer uh, right after college, a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And uh, then I opened up my, my own practice. Uh, but right when I, right around that time, it was uh, right when I finished college and uh, was uh, kind of didn't, didn't no longer played college sports and but I was still interested in lifting and, and uh, doing the lifestyle. Uh, that's when my uh, interest for bodybuilding uh, was introduced to me. Really, uh, a friend of mine was was a bodybuilder, and uh, I told him that I was looking for an avenue to be able to continue to compete and uh, and have have a goal to shoot for. And he said you should try bodybuilding. So I I actually went to the California State Championships uh, through the National Physique Committee, the NPC. So it was a high level show. Uh, but, uh, to, to, I didn't really know how it worked then. So I didn't know that none of those guys were pros. There was a guest poser, which was Lee Priest. Uh, and this was in 2000, May of 2000. And, uh, he was the only pro really that was, that was on stage as a guest poser, but all the other competitors, which were incredible competitors were actually, uh, just, uh, all amateurs competing for the, for, to be the Mr. California. And, uh, I, he convinced me, my friend to, Tried doing a show a few months later. So sure enough, about four months later, I dived down. I wasn't a very big guy. I was uh, more, you know, I always trained to be, you know, maybe not necessarily bigger, but faster, stronger, more powerful. Um, and uh, 
and I I uh, I tried to uh, I I got down to to competition body weight, but I I got all the way down to abandoned weight. I was just a little guy. Uh, I think I went from 160 pounds down to 141 pounds, something like that. Oh wow! Uh, not a lot of muscle. Not a lot of. And for the listeners, how tall are you? I'm, I'm only I'm uh, I'm five five. Five five. Okay. Five. Yeah. So, and actually, and I always like to say I'm five five with shoes on. So I'm, I'm actually like, <laughs> like like more like five four on the high end of five four. So yeah. So that that was uh, again. I was not. I wasn't necessarily the smallest guy, but I was not the biggest guy. I had decent symmetry, but definitely had a lot of work to do. But that's kind of what inspired my my journey in bodybuilding. As I as I went through the process, uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, what it took and the dedication and the time and uh, and then I, I the, the science of it really intrigued me I didn't really understand a lot of it uh, you know at that point in time even though I had a background in in uh, in physiology and anatomy and biomechanics and and uh, exercise physiology I didn't really kind of there was there was not a lot of uh, bodybuilding knowledge specifically and uh, and realistically you know I was I was uh, listening to a lot of the bro scientists, you know, back in the sure. day, and uh, and reading, um, you know, I, I, I back in the day we used to read the muscle and fitness magazines. I'm sure you probably remember oh, yeah. the Flex magazine. Yep. Uh, just getting a lot of information from from those sources, and and always though in the back of my head I was kind of questioning, well, but but what's the science behind this? And, and I would see conflicting statements from sometimes what the bros would say to what the science would say. And, and just as a, as a curious mind, I would always kind of question, like, you know, why did they do this? Or why did they do that? Or why does this work? Uh, or why, why, why is this widely practiced, but it's not accepted in the scientific community? So that's where I kind of uh, really started putting those two things together. Um, so I competed for, uh, that was my first competition in 2000. And uh, my last competition was just last year in 2020, so I've been competing for uh, literally over 20 years now, and uh, I haven't competed every year, uh, but I've competed on most years, and I think I haven't counted exactly, but I think I've done somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 45 shows wow. in, in, the, in the last 20 That's years. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and uh, and uh, a few of those, you know, and they've been from all levels to the NPC uh, you know, as a novice, uh, or just the, the open division, um, and then all the way to the to the national level. Uh, I've done a couple of junior shows, so like the NPC Junior Nationals, NPC U- Junior USA's, uh, and then I've done the NPC Nationals. Uh, and then now that I'm, uh, when I turned 35, I qualified to be be a master as well. So I've done some masters level shows uh, as well at the national level, um, and I've had good success. I've I've won a lot of shows locally. Uh, actually, for 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 several years, I actually didn't lose at the local level for for a long time. I would usually just use those to requalify for uh, competing at the national level. Nationally, I've had good success as well. Um, I uh, I can my I would say some of my best plays since I played second and third at the NPC uh, Junior USA's. Uh, I have another third third placement at the NPC Junior Nationals uh, at the USA. I placed. Uh, uh, anywhere from seventh. Uh, I've had a couple of top 15 finishes, a couple of top 10 finishes um, uh, at the Masters Nationals uh, or Masters level. I've, I've had a couple, I think one or two top five and then uh, uh, a couple of top tens uh, in there. So uh, and I've, I've uh, beaten some great guys. So actually, my I would say probably my my best show 
in terms of placing and beating some really competitive people was in 2013 when I actually, uh, it was the uh, LA Championships a week before the USA. And uh, Breon Ansley, who uh, was the, the men's physique Olympia, he won the light heavyweight class. I won the middleweight class. And I took second to him in the overall. But in my weight class, uh, Danny Hester, which actually was ended up being eventually the first uh, Mr. Olympia physique, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Classic Physique Olympia uh, in, I think, 2015 or so, 2016, um, he was in my weight class, and I actually beat him in the, in the middleweight class. So uh, I've, ha- I've beat some really good competitors, competed with amazing competitors, and uh, just uh, been, uh, I would say, the bridesmaid uh, very often for mm-hmm. my pro card. And I'm still, I'm still on my quest to get there. I told my wife, even if I'm 80 years old and I'm the last guy standing, <laughs> I'm going to get that pro card. So, uh, but that's, that was actually our dinner conversation, yeah. right? Whether, whether that's a, a smart philosophy, which, which was actually a very fun, fun conversation as well. Yeah, no, that was super fun. And do you, I think that's weird in bodybuilding a little bit. Like if you look at other sports, right? So if we look at like American football, right? You find a handful of people in their 40s or late 30s are like, holy crap, those people are old, right? Where bodybuilding, I, there's a lot of people that are still extremely competitive into mid-30s, late 40s. I wouldn't say late 40s, but late 30s, maybe sometimes early 40s. I think just because of the timeline, I think it it takes to achieve that look did you find that some of the masters competitors were maybe even a little bit more competitive than what you were up against before or not so much yeah no absolutely uh i i often say uh that you know the and i and and to to this point actually my very first usa championship you know i was a young kid 25 26 years old i think and uh i remember uh going to the USA Championships. So this was just the, the regular NPC USA Championships, top top people in the country, top amateurs in the country trying to get their pro card. And uh, I, I was a lightweight then, and I was cocky, you know, and I, I just barely nationally qualified. And uh, we're back there for weigh-ins. And this was before the time when there were all these different divisions. It was basically yeah. just, in, in, in the man, it was just bodybuilding. There was mm-hmm. no physique, no classic physique, none of that. But uh, so a lot of these guys were kind of bunched together. So our lightweight class was stacked. It had like over 50 guys in there. Ooh. And and in the weigh-ins there, uh, I remember uh, just before we actually disrobed to weigh in, uh, there were some guys, and I'm looking at their faces, and I'm like, man, these guys are some of these guys are like really old. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, like I'm, I'm. What are they doing here? Like, they could be like my dad. And, and and I'm looking at these guys, and then they started taking their clothes off to go way in, and I'm like, Grandpa's going to kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now I'm the grandpa, which is actually funny, because now I'm, I'm the one that's been there for a long time. And you're right. It's actually – it just takes that long to really develop a physique. So when you're, when you're in your you – know, unless, unless you started lifting when you were – 13 specifically for bodybuilding because I started lifting when I was 14, but not for bodybuilding. I, right. I lifted for sport. Uh, I didn't really start lifting for bodybuilding till I was, uh, you know, 23 ish or so. Um, so, uh, even though I had a kind of a foundation, you know, I didn't have a bodybuilding foundation. So a lot of these people, I would say most guys start maybe young would be, you know, very young would be 13, 14, 15. I would say most guys start more like in their mid early to mid 20s to kind of start in the bodybuilding world and, and some start a little bit later and uh 
uh, definitely, I mean, if you if you start at, let's say like I did, you know, at 22, 23, it's going to take you at least five to 10 years to really kind of, of bodybuilding training and a bodybuilding lifestyle to really uh, kind of develop the muscularity that you see for some of these top level competitors. Yeah. And what do you think some of that is? Because you can even look at like some of the just complete freaks, you know, outliers who are in there even mid twenties, you know, compared to, you know, some of the same freaks who are in their late thirties and amount of muscle yeah, similar. Obviously there's going to be differences, but they almost look completely different. Like there's something about the look of someone who's been doing it for just seems like decades. It just looks a lot more dense. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, their, uh, they just, they, they're just in tune with their physique and their body and their physiology totally. and, and they're able to, to dial those things in, you know, they, they led the lifestyle for a long time. They've done a lot of trial and error and they've self experimented. Uh, and, and I'm talking with everything from training practices to, uh, drug practices to nutrition practices to peaking practices. So all of those things. They, they have just more more data on themselves and they're able they're able to really manipulate that and not only that I think uh, some of the the competitors that are really serious that are that are older I mean they lead that lifestyle you know not for 12 or 16 or 20 weeks before the show they leave that lifestyle you know almost 365 yeah and 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 I think all of those uh, things you know do contribute to that and then of course you know uh you're you're you've built that muscle over time so you you've uh it, it's not it's not something that 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 just was newly developed over time which i think is uh uh something that that uh i think once it's once it's been there for a while it, it's it's not gonna go away and as as you and i know you know muscles made up of a lot of things you know water protein uh intramyocellular fat so there, there's a lot of intricacies there you know it's it's more than just this you know protein tissue uh and i think uh, but that's what happens i think these people that have been training a while is you know a lot of that that muscle is actually just better quality muscle yeah and what made you go back and do an advanced degree on the education side was it you talked about just being super passionate and wanting to learn more and that just sort of eventually led to a advanced degree <laughs> Yeah, it was it, it was funny because I I went through school really quickly through my, through my through my bachelor's. I actually got an MBA, uh, you know, uh, really quickly right after that. So I was working full time and I did my MBA. Uh, and uh, then I pivoted. I opened up my own my own business. It was a uh, it was a, a, a rehabil sports rehabilitation cash based business. Uh, fitness business, uh, and I provided athletic training services. I later teamed up with a physical therapist and. Uh, then we, we developed our PT practice and started doing insurance billing and all of that. Um, and then uh, I also, uh, after that was going pretty well, I actually uh, ended up investing with another business partner. I bought a world gym uh, and we up, we ended up opening up another one for a few years. But uh, right around that time, it was where business was pretty good. Everything was was moving up. Um, I just I just had a, a time where I wanted a as it was a personal goal to go through and, and uh, get, get my, my, my terminal degree. So I pursued a program that allowed me to run my businesses full time, uh, raise my family because I have two boys. I had two boys that were you know young kids at that point in time. And uh, I, uh, 
I uh, was able to pursue that that doctor uh, doctor of science degree in athletic training, which was great. It was right up my alley. But I didn't go with the intent to go into academia, uh, go into research. I, I did it as a as just a personal goal for something that I wanted to accomplish. And uh, then uh, as I got into the program. Uh, a few years into it because it, it actually took me eight years to complete that thing just because Oof. I was working full time and uh, that took and longer I, than my seven years that's impressive <laughs> <laughs> so you, you know what I mean I wasn't oh it was hell <laughs> yeah in, in fact they were, they were saying it's like if you don't finish this year you know you're like this is the timeline you're done yep so, that's what uh, I ran into too <laughs> <laughs> and you know a lot of that was actually Part of that was as a result of not only my business and my family and all those responsibilities, but it was my stubbornness in bodybuilding because mm. uh, as, as I finished my coursework um, I, and I was starting to write my dissertation, you know, I would start with doing the literature review and I would start kind of piecing things together. And then I would get, you know, this idea that I could do both. I could both get ready for a show oh, and wow. do my dissertation at the same time. Hmm. And of course... We know two weeks into my getting ready for a show, the dissertation stuff went out the window, and then <laughs> and and then that's what happened. And I I tried that two years in a row, uh, and that's kind of what what made me kind of spin my wheels for a while, where I was still kind of progressing toward the dissertation, but I, I wasn't doing what needed to be done just because so much time went into preparing for a show. Uh, so uh, that's that's when I actually told myself, "Hey, you're not competing." until you finish your dissertation so I, I i took a year off in 2008 and i took a year off in 2011 um and uh in 2011 was actually when i when i actually finished all my dissertation and i defended everything i finished everything in 2012 and then i competed a few months after that but it was after everything was was said and done but it was in that process that i really enjoyed i taught at a university uh, I got some experience there. I got to do research through my dissertation, um, and and that's when I really found that I enjoyed the process. So when I when I finished the doctorate, I uh, I took a, a a job as a as a part time adjunct lecturer uh, at my current school, actually at Cal State San Bernardino, and uh, and I just wanted to dip my put my my full body in a little bit more teaching, getting a more teach more of a teaching load, and I realized I liked it more. So then I. I went full uh, full in for a full 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 time tenure track position, and uh, and that's that that progressed over the years that way. Oh, that's awesome! I saw a stat recently where this could be wrong, but I think it said like fifty to sixty percent of people who pass their uh, composition right, so they start doing their defense, their what they call ABD, all but dissertation. Uh-huh. I think it was over half of them who even get to that point like still never graduate it was some crazy stat like that yeah i i, I would believe it because i mean i mean i would i would say i was on the verge of being one of those statistics and it was one of those things kind of like bodybuilding it's like you know hey you know what i'm I, this is this is about discipline and you just have yeah. to make sure <laughs> you have to buckle down and you know and you know roll your sleeves up and and write 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 and you read 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 and and you just have to make it work and no, you know no one's going to do it for you so uh, and it's a, it's a, it's always a beast to ride to write and to make make it happen. So, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things you just have to take a bite at a time. And of course, it didn't help that I was working full time, and mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I I start work at you know five six in the morning, get home at seven eight at night, and then uh, you know uh, you know say say hello to the kids for a little bit, and then 
at 9 p.m., you know, basically 9 p.m. to midnight, that's when I would write and do research. <laughs> so it was brutal, but it made, made it happen. Yeah, that's similar to what I went through towards the end, too, because I thought I was going to be done. Long story short, one of my studies, I spent a year and a half doing it. They refused to publish it because we didn't, quote, find anything. Um, so I had to <laughs> go find another um, study. But during that time, I thought I was going to be done. So I hired a business coach, started doing more online stuff, was still working uh, 24 to 30 hours a week for a med tech company, got married. And yeah, the last three years were just excruciating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've been on that same boat. And yeah, it's, a, it's, it's terrible. I mean, now I go back and I'm like, how the hell did you do that? Right. I can't do that again. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, we'll get into the topic of the day here of uh, all the things that go into being a high level bodybuilder. So we're here with Dr. Guillermo Escalante. And even if your goal is not to be a high-level bodybuilder, I think it's interesting just to get an idea, kind of a peek behind the curtain of all the things that go into it. And maybe if you do have some aspirations to do that, I think it's always good to be able to make educated decisions and have you know some idea what you may be in for if you choose to go down that path. So um, you had mentioned in the early part of the show just about doing bodybuilding like 24 7 which to me i think is kind of one of the very fascinating things i mean of course we all hear of you know high-ranked bodybuilders who do things kind of on and off but i would say for the most part it's one of those rare sports where there's there's an off season but not really right i mean i even know some some high-level american football players who yeah, they have an off season and, you know, they may take a, you know, a couple months off. They're still training and do other things, but I think bodybuilding is unique from the aspect of it's kind of all encompassing with the nutrition, the training, the sleep, the recovery and just even your off season, you're still not really off per se. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you hit right on on that is uh, you know, the the really successful high-level bodybuilders, I mean, really practice you know, the, the lifestyle, the bodybuilding lifestyle uh, for, you know, 365, you know, it, yeah. through, through holidays, through everything else. And, uh, you know, you can you can be strategic in how to do things. But, uh, you know, oftentimes there really is no, you know, two or three month break uh, when you do it. Maybe some people when they initially start do it that way. I know I know I kind of did where I would be really focused in, you know, for the, say, 16, 20 weeks before a show uh, and, and uh, live the lifestyle and then. Uh, I'd kind of, I'd still be, you know, lifting, but the rest of the lifestyle wasn't necessarily a bodybuilding lifestyle. But as I started moving up the ranks uh, and, uh, you know, going into uh, the, the national level uh, of competition, you realize that if you want to be successful, that's not going to cut it, and you really need to to change that. And I think that's that's what I admire about some of these top pros is, you know, that that discipline to do that, and you know, to constantly be conscientious about you know what you're eating how you're eating how much you're eating uh you know how to train how to recover you know uh not not going out till you know two three in the morning uh because you have to go to sleep and you have to to recover to train the next day uh those are all you know very admirable uh to do because they don't just do them once in a while i mean they're literally doing that for years on end to to compete at that high level yeah i always find that fascinating and even sometimes I look at clients who enjoy training, 
and some of them who let's say have more competitive aspirations and then you kind of compare that to what they're doing now and i think it's sometimes hard to emphasize that if you want to be the elite of the elite what you said is it's kind of all-encompassing and you can argue if that's healthy or not healthy but high-level sports has never really been about health period (laughs) so yes i think just the not only the physical but just the the mental day in and, and day out and i remember listening to interviews with you know dorian yates talking about what he did and you know just all the the social things that you sort of miss out on but yet you're trying to somewhat lead a, a normal life per se and yeah i just think that's probably one of the most difficult aspects that's very much underappreciated no absolutely it's it's uh it's one of those things that um you just don't understand the the obsessive component, and I think I think most top level athletes would, uh, you know, and I'm talking, you know, Olympic caliber, you know, pro caliber, you know, there's there's a you know, the, people always say, you know, I want to lead a balanced lifestyle, but you mm. know, talk to anybody successful <laughs> at anything, and I don't think there's a lot of balance in no. anybody that's really at the top of their game. You know, you have to sacrifice a lot to be that, you know, at that elite level, and no matter what you do, if it's your profession. You know, financial, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes to that elite level, unless you're going to just be one of those lucky bastards that wins the lottery or something. Right. <laughs> but uh, the, the the way it works really is uh, with uh, with sport. I mean, there's obsession and with bodybuilding, you know, that's kind of taken to the next extreme because now it's it's really, you know, how you lead your lifestyle. Like personally, you know, uh, I would actually say that uh, my bodybuilding lifestyle. So I, I've, I've actually, I'm going to be personal here, but I've, I've actually been married four times, mm. and uh, and uh, you know, I would say, I, I would, I would verge to say that probably three of those, uh, my first three marriages, a lot of what kind of inked on that was that obsession uh, over that that bodybuilding. Life. Certainly, my second and third, you know, were were partly as a result of that very selfish, uh, very a fatiguing lifestyle that you know they can hang for a little bit but you know when these they see you doing it again and again and again and it's never ending uh it can be be very very challenging uh and i think that that can be fatiguing so there's a lot of personal sacrifice that goes on bodybuilding is a very selfish sport uh where you know all you really kind of look is you know it's all about you and and it it, it can be very difficult to uh to see that uh, when you're when you're in the moment trying to accomplish those things as a bodybuilder. Yeah, because from the outside looking in, I think people just always see snapshots of any athletic in Denver. Bodybuilding's, I think, no different from that, right? So we have the Olympics coming up, and you see all these amazing performances, and then you realize even if you're a first-time competitor, you probably started training very young, you know, with some sports gymnastics, extremely young, and then you've got a four-year cycle of training and everything that goes into it that leads up to, for some athletes, like a single event. You know that to me is just it's crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think uh, Usain Bolt actually said it best. He said something like, "You know, I spent you know uh, you know eight years training to run you know nine seconds." And yeah. uh, I mean, and that's and that's kind of the reality of it. And uh, with a lot of these athletes, you know, it's, it's just that one single thing for that pinnacle. And, and when you see those people, you know, that, that 
And we only appreciate the ones that get the, the, those medals, right? But right. what about all the other ones that just 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 to get there? Yeah. You know, forget it. Forget getting a medal. Just to get there and be able to compete at that level is an incredible feat and an incredible sacrifice. And and bodybuilding really is no different, you know. To uh, but even I would say even to compete, you know, at the regional level, yeah, you can still step on stage and maybe not sacrifice so many things but to really compete well and uh, you know get a top 15 placing a top 10 placing at a national level show you you put in some 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 sweat equity in there and you sacrificed a lot to do that yeah um talk about some of the the training like about did you find a big difference coming from a athletic background did you see faster gains when you switched to more of a a bodybuilding style of training was it radically different and then do you think having a more athletic background kind of sets you up to be in a better position once you did switch to more bodybuilding focused training uh yeah i think uh, the training is completely different you know it was actually completely foreign to me uh because i you know i i never you know i would do for example you know a biceps and a tricep exercise as part of my uh, my routine but that was kind of like an afterthought kind of like a fill-in exercise it wasn't something that I would emphasize. And certainly, like, you know, to add different varieties and work the muscle in different angles and, and why I was going to, you know, change the angle and why I was going to do different variations of that or or how am I going to do this lap pull down and why am I going to use an overhand versus an underhand versus a wide grip versus a close grip and, and uh, you know, why would I implement that? You know, before it's like, you know, I'm going to do a pull down or a pull up and, yeah. <laughs> and that's just kind of going to hit the, hit the back. But in bodybuilding, it's way more intricate than that. You know, you have to kind of get into the, you know, why am I going to bury it? Why am I going to use maybe a single hand versus a, you know, a, a double hand? So an uh, isolated exercise and, and how do I, how am I going to position my body? How am I going to execute that exercise? And uh, so the training is definitely very different. And it's one of those things where you don't really appreciate that until you're, you're kind of further along, particularly because when you're first starting, you know, your body just responds just the change in from changing from, you know, a relatively lower volume, higher intensity to a relatively higher volume type style training. Uh, your body will adapt to that. But then as you start progressing further and you're trying to now you're you're reading, you're reaching that you're getting that to that ceiling effect where, you know, you're maybe reaching closer to your genetic potential you know, now to gain an extra, you know, three pounds of muscle, five pounds of muscle, it's freaking ridiculously hard. And, uh, and, and not only that, but to add it where you want to add it and to, to, to be symmetrical with the rest of your physique, uh, you know, that there's an art to that. So it's, it's, it's kind of blending that science and the art to be able to do that and, and, uh, and how you select your exercises, why you select your exercises, and also what works best for you and your physique. Uh, how to prioritize your training it's definitely very different but i will say that that athletic background uh did help me prepare for that a little bit better because you have a little bit more of that uh just kinesthetic awareness and you're able to pick up different movement patterns you know if you can uh somebody cues you on on how to how to alter your physique or your posture uh, or your positioning uh you just have more kinesthetic awareness so i think you're you're able to pick up a lot of these nuances whereas when you don't have that background and that can be really hard uh i, I think it, it makes it difficult not only that but the discipline behind that too you know i i always remember back to my heck my my seventh grade eighth grade uh junior high school football coach in mm -hmm. texas in the heat the the discipline that they taught me 
you know, and, and just gutting through. And, you know, I, I could still hear that coach yelling in my ear, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know, you got to want it. He would say, you got to want it. And, and, you know, I mean, we'd be running in the heat. And, and I kind of put that same train of thought into my training when, when you're trying to give up in that set. So all of those things combined, I think, really help you in being successful to kind of push through and, and, and grunt uh, to, to make things happen as a bodybuilder. Do you find some body parts can just take more, I don't want to say the word abuse, but more volume with higher frequency? Like one thing I've noticed, and again, I don't coach a lot of high-level physique athletes, a, a few here and there, but you know, vast majority of my clients are looking for you know more muscle mass, performance, better body comp. So it's all you know, kind of similar principles per se. I find like for like the back, not so much low back, but like just upper back to keep it very general you can most people can take a pretty high amount of volume and recover i don't necessarily find that that's true for other i guess if we split it into body parts have you found something kind of similar that you've kind of changed your training or you would advise people to maybe modify some stuff they're doing yeah, I think I definitely think that that there is truth to that. There there are some muscle groups that are just going to be able to handle more more volume um, and uh, and and be able to recover a little bit faster. So you know, I think you know, it comes to mind for me is you know, biceps, triceps, mm-hmm. you know, calves. They they tend to you can you can you can actually train those with fairly good frequency and they they tend to recover uh, fairly well. But you know, but try you know trying to do the quads that way or the or the you know the, the the leg complex in general, not it, with your calves aside. You know, I mean, you you really can't do some uh, high volume, high intensity type of training. Um, and that being said, in addition to you know, there are some inter inter individual variability with that sure. to who can handle some of that. But I will say that uh, definitely in, in bodybuilding, that's kind of thing that's cool is you know you don't just train. You know, when when you begin training, you maybe. Uh, if you're kind of somewhat don't have a lot of development, you can kind of train some things equally. But then as you start developing and you start seeing, you know, what you genetically are going to develop easier than others, uh, then you start have to tweak your program because otherwise you're going to develop a lot of asymmetries over time. Uh, and wh- one thing that I did say that I that I, I do miss actually as a bodybuilder, I've always I always say this is. The, the better bodybuilder I've become, the worse athlete I have become. <laughs> so, because I, you know, I, I used, I was, I was a sprinter, you know, so, you know, mm. I ran, I ran a, I ran a 1080 500. Uh, oh, damn. That's good. Uh, yeah. Under 22 seconds in the 200, under 50 seconds in the 400. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah. And, and now, you know, it's like if I run the 100, you need a calendar. It's like how many, it takes me <laughs> 1.2 days to do that. Uh, and, and I miss being fast. I miss being, super explosive uh i miss i I've, even though I, I i won't part of it is my fault i i do stretch but i i don't i don't i don't emphasize a lot of flexibility in in my training even though i've had to implement that more as i get older but uh with uh, with all of that i part of it is my as my a result of me just not implementing not prioritizing these things but i've definitely felt that i i uh i haven't been able to be as explosive so even though i'm really strong I'm definitely not as explosive. Uh, you know, I don't sprint very fast. You know, I can't change direction very fast just because I don't prioritize that into my into my training really at all. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I, I always have this discussion with clients too of, 
I think there may be some merit if you want to be the best bodybuilder known to man that you're probably going to have to give up some athletic performance. But usually when I dig a little bit deeper with clients, even with myself, most people probably don't want to give that up in, entirely. So I think it's a good point and a discussion even for people just to think about of, you know, how far down one path do they want to go? And, you know, again, what are some of the costs associated with that? Yeah, because it, it, it definitely plays a role. And and uh, yeah, and not only that, you know, just carrying, carrying so much excess body weight on your frame, um, you know, it, it, it does take its toll, even if it is, you know, uh, you know, muscle mass that you're carrying around. I mean, man, it, 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 you feel it, you feel it, uh, walking around and, uh, you know, I think the heaviest I've been, I told you I'm, I'm, uh, I'm five, five with shoes on, but the heaviest I've been is two thirty. Uh, wow. and, uh, and I was, I was a fluffy two thirty. I wasn't a very Still. lean two thirty, but, <laughs> but I, I've been a fairly lean two ten, and, uh, and even that is challenging. And, you know, right now I, I walk around at about 200, 205 pounds I think my body fat is somewhere, you know, in the off season, you know, between 11 and 13% very typically. So uh, even then, you know, it's like, man, it's like, I definitely feel it. I, I, I actually feel better. You know, I really have to kind of diet down and be, you know, uh, single digit body fat, you know, to, to really kind of feel not so achy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I'm fairly lean, but still, I still have that ex that all that body weight, you know, carrying 200 pounds at, at a five foot four, five foot five. That's a lot of body weight. Yeah, definitely. Um, briefly on nutrition, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the drugs and other effects that go into it. But I'm always curious, like what was for you personally, like the highest amount of calories you got to in the off season? Yeah, well, I would say probably when I when I did some dirty bulks back in the day. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's done that. <laughs> yeah, because you, you kind of have to, right? At some point, it's a requirement almost. <laughs> exactly. So I would say, you know, I got to consistently eating between five and six thousand calories on a on a regular basis, yeah. and uh, that was, you know, that that was quite challenging. And and now, of course, I, you know, over the years, I find it's like, you know, I I don't really need to go that high. Uh, you know, and, uh, and I, even in my off season, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to bulk, I typically go maybe, you know, five, maybe 10% over, over what I actually need. And, and I, I can grow just as effectively that way without having to, to lose all that body fat. But, but yeah, I mean, regardless, even, even then, I mean, that's still a lot of food. Cause I mean, I, I yeah. diet on 28, 2900 calories. Oh, so my maintenance, is, yeah, my, my maintenance is about 33, 34 uh, so, so even if I had 10% for that, you know, uh, it's, it's still quite a bit of food. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I think if, I mean, I remember for the highest I ever got up to that I was able to do, you know, consistently was between 3,500 and 4,200 and it didn't work so well. I just got fat, but <laughs> for a period of time, just doing that, just trying to eat like even just whole food, it's like non-stop and your grocery bill gets high and i think people underestimate and phil's talked about this on the show and lonnie has too that the first couple of weeks are great and then after that you don't want to have any more steering contests with your bowl of white rice and it gets kind of old pretty fast <laughs> yeah no it it absolutely does uh it gets it gets fast to try to get all that food down especially when you're trying to get it you know like you said from whole food sources you know, I mean, uh, you can only do so much, you know, uh, 
chicken and rice yep. and, and, and potatoes. And, uh, and, and of course, you try to get your vegetables in there, which actually makes it really hard. Yeah. Harder to, to get all that in, especially when you're trying to get all that protein in, in addition to all the other calories that's so satiating. I mean, man, it's it becomes very challenging. And I, you did mention something. It's that grocery bill. You know, I mean, I remember I mean, my grocery bill, you know, even my wife and I now, I mean, I think we spend about a thousand bucks a month on groceries. And that's, oh, I believe and that's, that. And that's the two of us, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so transitioning into uh, some of the aspects, at least from a pharmaceutical side, at what point do you think people should at least consider doing that? Because I don't think it's any shocker that at the elite level, drugs are a big part of it, as they are in almost any sport. Um, right. But my pet peeve is people who kind of look at that as sort of the answer as to why they're not where they're at. And usually most of the time when I hear these conversations, it's, you know, somebody who's been training in the gym like less than a year. And I'm just like, just go away, go train for five, ten years or something. Maybe I'm this old curmudgeon guy now. And, and then maybe <laughs> consider it at that point. And even then I'm just like, like, do you have any sort of rules of thumb when people should – at least look into it more or at least start having those conversations? Because to me, it seems like those things happen at a very uneducated level and they happen way too early. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think I think even a, a lot of people that aren't in the field, you know, will say, oh, you know, you, you're just that big because you take the drugs. And, like, they don't see the other, you know, uh, components. And, and yeah. I, I always see uh, – I don't know if you read the book, but Spitting in the Soup is a, is a mm, great book. I have not. That is – Oh, it's great. It, it, it talks about, you know, basically the how 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 uh, the doping has kind of been put under the rug. But yet, you know, uh, we want to see all the Olympic records broken right. and we want and we want to compete. And it, it really talks about the politics, the the economics and and the drugs themselves and, and kind of where we are in the state of affairs today. But hmm. it's a great book that kind of highlights some of these things. And uh, and, and what, I, what I often see is, you know, people think they describe it in the book as a. You know, people think that, you know, the 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 communists were beating us uh, Americans, you know, in the you know, in the 1960s and 70s only because of the drugs. But they didn't realize like that was only one brick out of the whole wall that yeah. they were doing. You know, it's like they had you know, they had they had invested in exercise physiologists and, you know, they, they were doing periodization before we knew what it was. They were doing weight training before we knew what it was. So they were doing a lot of these other things first. And yeah, drugs were part of it. And, and kind of that's what I always go with bodybuilding is, you know, yeah, at the high level, drugs are part of it. But you need to make sure you have all these other things right, done correctly. And I agree with you 100 percent. You know, if, if you haven't been in the gym, you know, at least two, three years, you know, and not just in the gym, but doing in the in the gym, dotting your eyes and crossing your T's consistently for two or three years. I, I think you have no business at all. Uh, doing any sort of drug, um, you know, during that time, you should be focusing on, you know, am I eating consistently? Am I eating enough? Am I am I balancing the right type of macronutrients uh, and micronutrients? Uh, am I training, you know, with enough frequency, with enough intensity? Is my training program right? Um, am I recovering well? Um, you know, am I leading this lifestyle? And because then and only then, if you're not doing all those major things first, I mean, 
the drugs are of course going to work, but they but they don't work to the level that they could, and and you, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because you don't know how far you could have gone without the drugs doing all those things right. And uh, uh, I think that's it's it's actually a, a sad state of affairs when people kind of uh, dive into that, uh, you know, very very early. Um, my son's actually uh, in, into powerlifting and bodybuilding, and that's something that I instilled into him. So now he's twenty three, but. You know, he's been he's got a solid of, you know, seven years of lifting and he's still a natty. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud of him for yeah. doing that because he really has kind of, uh, you know, he's put up some amazing numbers, you know, in the in powerlifting. He's done some he's he's competed in, in physique shows and done very well as a complete natural athlete. And uh, and uh, it, it's not until now where I would probably say, so, you know, if that, was, if that was the road he chose and that's what he wanted to do, where I would probably say, OK, you know, You've paid your dues. You've kind of done a lot of other things correctly. Um, you know, the other thing I want to make sure with 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 any young athletes is, you know, you need to be, you know, uh, financially stable because it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you need you need to have you know medical insurance so you can go get your blood work done and or have the money to be able to pay for those things out of pocket where you're you're getting because you, you got to keep your health in mind. So it not only are the drugs expensive, but they're also um, you know, you need to keep your health uh, out there. So I, you want to make sure that you're getting things tested on a regular basis. You know, I would say minimum two, ideally three or four times a year. You want to get your blood work done to make sure you're not killing yourself. Um, and uh, not only that, but just being, um, I think, emotionally ready and and mentally ready, mentally mature. Because uh, if you're not, it's, it just sets up a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think those are all good points i think that the amount of some people i see who will take my opinion kind of crazy choices with pharmaceuticals and then do like the ostrich method of bury their head in the sand where they don't even want to look at their hdl levels right (laughs) i'm like the amount of stuff you're on your hdl it may be single digits like i think putting your head in the sand is not going to change it like you should probably go in and get some blood work there <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and i think if you're not monitoring that you know then uh, that could definitely be be dangerous and i would say even when i started because uh and and i'm very open about this you know but but i've been i my first two years competing you know i actually qualified for national level competition as a natural in the in the lighter weight classes as, as a bantamweight lightweight um, but then when I got to the national level, you know, I got my butt kicked as a as a as a natural competitor, sure. and that's when I kind of decided because um, I was actually anti drugs for for a couple of years, and then uh, when when I went to that to that USA Championship and I uh, you know got I don't know fourth call out, you know, I, I it didn't feel good, and and I had worked hard to get there, and I I decided okay, well, if I want to stay in this be competitive in this and really, you know, make a nudge at it, then, um, I need to cross that bridge. And, uh, luckily I've done a lot of research in those two years, but I was still not for it until right about that time. That's when I had my, my, my calling, I would say, but that being said, you know, I've got about 18 years worth of time where I've been doing these things. And in, in, in early on, I would say, um, I would still do blood work, but not as regularly as I should. Uh, and, uh, and now that I've gotten older, that's become kind of a bigger priority, especially when you see some of these people that are, that are dying in their thirties, their forties, uh, 
And, uh, you know, it's you, you really want, you know, you want to you want to be careful with how you're doing things. And I don't say that the drugs are 100 percent to blame, but I think it's just, you know, lack of paying attention, like you're saying, burying your head in the sand and not paying attention to all these other risk factors that you're exposing yourself to. Yeah. And, you know, some of the and who knows if they're true or not, some of the, the cycles you hear about or people who have talked about it, at least appears to me that. You know, some of the high level pros who have gotten out and, you know, appear to be doing pretty good. Like the two people always comes to my head is Dorian Yates and Ben Pakulski, you know, uh -huh. that competed both at a high level and, you know, seem to be doing pretty good now. Probably picked a good time, you know, to, to get out where you see some other people, especially younger people who appear to, you know, have good talent, probably, you know, genetic outliers put in the work. And then you hear of some of the, the crazy stuff they do and it just it just seems like to me with physiology like if you're redlining the car you just can't expect the car to go for a long period of time right it just looks like there's a very if you step on the gas that hard you've got a, a limited runway to play with yeah i agree 100 percent, and i think and, and that's what i see a lot of the young guys that are that are coming out is uh they're uh uh they're they're so aggressive with what they're doing uh and it's like like you said they're redlining all the way through and uh you know i mean there's like dallas mccarver is a, a good example yeah. you know the, the, i mean the kid died at 26 27 yeah. uh, and i remember taking him off stage uh at a, at a pro show when oh, i was wow. doing the athletic training sports medicine services and you know uh it, it was it was uh it, it, it's 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 scary to see them uh doing some of this stuff yeah yeah. And at the end of the day, I always think that it it comes down to there's always these and I don't participate in these weird debates online about um, who should do it, who not should do it. And it just seems like it's a to me, it just comes down to more of a personal decision. And at the end of the day, I don't think there's a real clear delineation. Right. Even if you look at what is considered a drug. Right. I mean, Caffeine is considered a drug. Alcohol is a drug. You know, there's performance enhancing drugs, right? So it's kind of, it is somewhat, I think, arbitrary where you draw the line. And I think for an individual, that's just more or less a personal decision. Like for myself, like I don't even use HRT or anything. That's just my personal decision. But yet I drink coffee and I've gone to Costa Rica and done combo and ayahuasca and other stuff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it makes no sense from a physiologic assessment of what is a drug, what isn't. For me, it's just purely a personal decision. And if someone else wants to do something else, cool. It doesn't bother me. Each person, I think, has to make their own decision. I just hope that they do it in a very educated way where they've weighed the pros and the cons with it because i i just get nervous when i see very what appears to be uneducated decisions and the last component too is that with a lot of the stuff that you know, high level competitors are doing like we talked about at dinner who knows what's going on right there's almost no research in that area to even try to have an educated conversation too so there's just a lot of unknowns yet too yeah, I agree 100 percent, you know, uh, everything from where you draw the line and, and leaving it as a personal choice, you know, uh, uh, and I, I appreciate, you know, the, the non judgmental approach you take Because I'm the same way, you know, uh, 
and and I I follow the same thing, you know, even to personally, even with with other drugs, you know, whether sure. you know, marijuana or other, it's like, hey, you know, it's your body, you know, it's your decision, like, you know, choose to do what do you do you and I do me, and and that's okay. Uh, and uh, but I, I agree that there is, uh, you know, uh, that that lack of education, particularly in the performance enhancement drug. Uh, component where where we see all of that and uh, and I, we see it a lot. I know uh, Rick Collins. He, he and mm-hmm. I uh, do a, we we talk quite a bit and uh, we actually uh, he published a paper several years ago. We actually presented some of this at, at ISSN uh, a while ago. But uh, one his paper that he published it was in two thousand six or seven. You know that, that who who's the the primary user of yeah. these uh, performance enhancement drugs and. You know, it's it's not an athlete. It's it's that it's like, a, you know, I think he described it from the surveys that they took of thousands of people. You know, the the most common user is like a, a male, white male with a higher than average education in their in their early 30s. Who's got a higher than average uh, income, uh, financially stable with a family. And uh, and that's who's juicing, you know, yeah. for the most part. And most of and, those are non-competitive athletes. Yeah, and the yeah. reason they're doing it is just to look better naked, in a sense. Yeah. Um, so they're not, you know, they're they're not there to to win a trophy or to win the next Olympia. They just want to look better. But I think that's where we often see what you said the, the the lack of education in terms of what they're using and how they're using it and how much they're using. Um, yeah, and in today's society now, I mean, it's it's especially in the United States, it's so hard to come by, you know, uh, appropriate. Uh, drugs. I mean, most of what you're going to find are going to be underground drugs. So, you know, where, how are they made? You know, how, how, how are they, how are they monitored? Well, they're not monitored. So where are you yeah. getting them from? Uh, which is very scary. You know, they're not pharmaceutical grade. And of course you can go to a physician and get some prescription, you know, if you, if you're a candidate for that. Um, but you know, the amount of drugs, first of all, they're not going to prescribe you super physiological doses. Um, and secondly, the, the types of drugs that are available are somewhat limited. You know, I mean, there, there's only a few that are legally allowed to be prescribed that are actually still currently made uh, that you can purchase, you know, as a as a pharmaceutical grade drug. So uh, that leaves a lot of room for error. Um, and uh, and uh, and in the, the type of drug that you're getting, the dosages that you're getting. Um, and you said uh, one very important thing is we don't know what the effects of these are when you're taking them at, you know, I think the in, in research, the highest dosage I've seen that has been studied uh, has been 600 milligrams a week of testosterone. And for a lot of bodybuilders, I mean, that's not a low dosage, but that's not a high dose. Right. I, I know some bodybuilders <laughs> who take double or triple that, Yeah. Um, which is insane. Yeah, and then you add on top of that, they may not be monitoring blood work. They don't even have a physician they're working with. And the other part, too, is that I think most people know this, but if you go to your doctor, like, just for God's sake, like, find someone who's used to working with that and tell them what you're doing. I mean, they're they're not going to report you to the cops. You know what I mean? But if you're not informing them of everything that's that's going on i think they're also dealing with an incomplete picture and there's only so much they can do to help you at that point too granted they're going to look at your blood work and you know maybe freak out a little bit but yeah find someone you can trust who's used to dealing with with that and just have an honest conversation with them yeah absolutely i think that's really important um and 
if 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 you're if you can't trust your doctor, then you need to find another doctor. Exactly. Because, <laughs> and 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 uh, and also know the doctor that you're working with, and hopefully they're uh, open-minded and educated enough yes. in that to, to help you. Because a lot of them are not, and that's okay. That's not their cup of tea, and and uh, they may not be be used to dealing with. Some of them may may try to, uh, you know, uh, hopefully they're not, but there are some people, they might try to steer you away and, and, you know, and that's not their role really. They, they can educate you and tell you the, you know, that that's kind of their, their goal. Uh, and, and that, that, I think that's, that's, uh, you know, definitely something they should do. But, uh, you know, I think the, the component of, uh, not telling them anything, you're right. It leads for a very incomplete picture. Not only that, but I think a lot of people, and this is something that I'm interested in studying too. And, uh, Dr. Thomas O'Connor, he's an MD, yeah. I don't know if you know, but he's, mm-hmm. he's a great guy. I mean, he, he was a hardcore power lifter, you yep. know, uh, you know, dabbed into, into the, the anabolics aggressively for, for, for years on end and, you know, went to medical school and studied that. But he works with a lot of patients and he wrote a book, America on steroids, which is very telling in terms of, uh, some of the, the way that a lot of patients who have used for many years and they've come off and they want to come off and they maybe want to have a family or maybe they just no longer want to use, uh, th- they're often mistreated, not, not maliciously by doctors, just because a lot of the doctors don't know what to do or how to right. treat them. And that's his cup of tea is really helping those individuals because a lot of them, uh, when, when, when he reports some of the, the, the case studies is some of these people have been off the drugs, you know, for a year, two years, even up to 10 years. And, uh, they've gone through, they've used the HCG, they've used the Clomid, but their, their testes no longer produce the testosterone. Mm-hmm. It, they no longer work. It's, I mean, it's a long-term. So those individuals, you know, they, they have to almost permanently be on HRT yep. because their testes are no longer working. And, uh, and that's something that's very real and very important. And if you're not treating that, then, you know, you're really mistreating that patient because they're going to have all of those side effects associated with that. That's going to, you know, lead to depression. It's going to lead to, uh, you know, a muscle loss, potentially bone loss. Uh, it's going to all of those sexual dysfunction, all of those variables that come with low testosterone and you just can't cold you just can't quit cold turkey so having someone that you can work with with that is really important yeah dr eric serrano has a lot of good information in that area too and yeah some crazy stories too (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely for sure yeah awesome well thank you so much for all your time we really appreciate it and thank you for being so honest and open with everything it's much appreciated uh, where can people find more information? I know you've got some great stuff you put out on on Instagram, but where can they find more information about you? Awesome. Yeah, my Instagram handle is at Dr. GFit. So it's all spelled out, Dr. GFit spelled out. And uh, that's my Instagram handle. And, and I do post a lot of stuff on, uh, I really kind of keep it general. I, I post on some general health stuff, some bodybuilding specific stuff, uh, general exercise stuff. I post some new studies that are interesting to me post a few personal things here and there so i i keep it keep it uh fairly fresh and and consistent and uh that way uh intriguing for people to kind of read different things so it's not it's not just specifically for bodybuilders but there is a lot of bodybuilding content in there for sure as well um and uh the other ways that they can reach me is uh i'm an associate professor and a dean fellow for the college of natural sciences uh at cal state san bernardino so they can you can find me on the uh, university's website under our kinesiology department. So it's csusb.edu. And uh, you can find me on our website there. Uh, 
or you can just Google my name, Guillermo Escalante Kinesiology, uh, and you'll find my name there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing everything. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 